I mean, can you imagine if that was true? Like my article for for the Japan Times would have been the headline would have been like, you know, finally things mm. grow in Hiroshima. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. At 8.15 on the morning of August 6, 1945, some 350,000 people in Hiroshima were just beginning their day when an atomic bomb nicknamed Little Boy was dropped from the Enola Gay and detonated 580 metres above the city, killing an estimated 70,000 people. Three days later, at 11.02am on August 9th, US forces dropped a plutonium bomb codenamed Fat Man on Nagasaki, which exploded at 503 metres and killed another 40,000 people. The people who survived those two events and are still alive today are known in Japanese as Hibakusha. But 75 years on from the bombing, the number of survivors able to tell their stories is dwindling as they grow older and die. On today's episode of Deep Dive, to mark the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, I'm joined by Japan Times contributor and Hiroshima resident Peter Cordes to discuss the effects of the bomb on the city and how the legacies of those that survived the bomb are being preserved. Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So you're a resident of Hiroshima. What's it like to live there 75 years on from the bomb? What's it like as a city now? Um, great question. Um, you know, it's a very it's a very beautiful city. Um, it's a very peaceful city in more ways than one. Um, of course, it's it is the city of peace officially, but um, it also uh, it's very relaxing. It's kind of in that just from a logistical you know perspective, it's a little bit out of the way from big places like. You know Tokyo and Osaka, and it's sort of in that that interesting cusp between being a big town and a small city. And it's also interesting too because you see these like you know modern buildings and you know things like that. But then every now and again, you know, you'll just see like everywhere in the city there's there's monuments, right? And that's actually mm. one of the many many nicknames of Hiroshima. Hiroshima has a shocking number of nicknames. We're like the city of rivers, the city of water, uh, the Venice of the East. Um, the city uh, one, of peace, one of, of the course. many Venices of the East. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, one, one of the many, many indeed. Um, you know, but also uh, the city of monuments. We're called the city mm. of monuments. So these are monuments that are dedicated to the the A bombings. Yes, and of course, not every you know monument in Hiroshima is dedicated uh, to the A bombing. But I mean, of course, like the in the Peace Park, there's over seventy five monuments or something in the Peace Park. But then even like outside the Peace Park. There's just monuments everywhere. You'll be going along the riverbank and there's a monument. Oh, there's another monument. Um, you know, every single school has a monument in the courtyard, um, you know, with the the kanji, the characters of children who died in the A-bomb and teachers who died in the, in the A-bombing, you know, carved into it just silently, you know, bearing witness there. You know, it's a place where literally like it's that day, as they call it, was burnt into the stones. It's under your feet. You know, if you talk to people who live here, especially A-bomb survivors, they say, you know, like there are still ashes of, you know, of the victims under our feet still sleeping, you know, so. But if you were to go there today, you would see a city of life, which yeah. I think is something that might surprise a lot of people and definitely surprised me, not with Hiroshima, but with Nagasaki. Um, before I came to Japan, I'd always thought of Nagasaki as a city that was completely destroyed. And then I actually went there because I used to live not too far away in Fukuoka. And when I went there the first time, I was really taken aback by how, exciting and dynamic Nagasaki felt as a city I kind of just assumed it would be still commiserating from the war or really affected by it yeah I mean it was one of the things like if you look at you know I mean I think and I think a lot of the people um you know who haven't been and a lot of people in the west 
you know, if they, you know, know about Hiroshima and I'm, this is true of Nagasaki as well, you know, like you type in in Google, right. And like, and what comes up are these like black and white photos of devastation. And, um, I think it's highly possible that there's a lot of people that don't even really realize that there's actually like thriving, vibrant cities here now in both of those places. Yeah. It's not just a rubble strewn wasteland and like, it's even in color, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a cool transformation wizard of Oz style. Yeah. So you've just written a piece for the Japan Times about the atomic bombings, uh, mainly focusing on Hiroshima. And in that piece, you talked with some of the survivors who are known as Hibakusha in Japanese. So let's put that transformation from black and white to colour, from ruin to revival into some context. Mm -hmm. Just how badly was Hiroshima affected by the bombings? Um, That's a great question. And of course, you know, the very best people to ask about that are the people who witnessed it, who are fortunately still with us. But from um, what I have heard from them and accounts that I have read, um, I mean... It was it was bad. Um, so essentially, in the what, you know what many called the circle of death, the area around um, the hypocenter, which is the point directly under at ground level, directly under the blast, it was pretty much just like rubble, really. Like the A bomb dome was there, and you could. I mean, some people say like the A bomb dome survived the bombing, but it didn't really survive because if you see pictures of it now versus pictures of it before the bombing, like. I mean, it like it's mm. sort. I mean, it sort of survived. You know, it definitely was changed forever. It's a ruin. You know, it's not an inhabitable building. It's not a usable building um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and just to clarify, the A bomb dome is that famous ruined structure in the Peace Park that was left standing despite being right beneath the hypocenter. Um, it was the one underneath the hypocenter, and there were a couple of other in that you know in the downtown area that were still standing. But again, most of them were were really bad shape um, and needed to be destroyed um, because they were just it was not possible even to rent to to resuscitate them. Of course, the further away from the hypocenter you get, the more you'll find some structures that that survived. Um, over behind Hiroshima Station, there's even some temples that um, like there's one in particular. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but um, if you go inside the the pillars inside glitter, they have like this shimmering glittery look, and that's because of glass shards that were embedded into the wooden pillars um, oh, wow. from from the from the blast. And there, that's like three or four kilometers away from the hypocenter. And one of the other things that's kind of interesting too, um, that will kind of that that's one of the things that I think is confusing that kind of hides that that aspect in Hiroshima is how many trees there are. There's a lot of trees and there's a lot of really old trees, like big old trees that are certainly mm. older than than 75 years. And um, something that's really amazing that a lot of people don't know about Hiroshima is that the vast majority of trees, especially all the old ones, were actually donated by um, by other prefectures because when they were rebuilding the city, um, you know, everybody was was really hard hit at that time, right? And so, you know, they knew if they asked for money that it would be a no-go. So they said, well, you know, if you want to help Hiroshima, donate trees. And um, over the course of, I think, two years, like literally every prefecture donated trees to Hiroshima. So when you visit Hiroshima, in a way, you're kind of visiting all of Japan. It's kind of cool. <laughs> you're an excellent salesman for the city. That's fascinating, though, especially when you realize that one of the earliest worries about Hiroshima was that nothing would ever grow there again. I think a lot of the early claims were that it would take 75 years before any plants would come back to life and grow naturally there. Well, which is the year we're now at. That's right. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if that was true? Like my article for for the Japan Times would have been, the headline would have been like, you know, finally, 
things mm. grow in Hiroshima. <laughs> so, you know, and it's funny to us now, but they were like, people were really serious about it. And that was one of the many things, one of the many things that created this atmosphere of despair in Hiroshima after the bombing. Like not only was everything destroyed, you know, tons of people had died, you know, 70,000 people died, um, you know, in the bombing. Um, and then, and that number doubled over the course of the following months as people dropped from, from radiation poisoning, right? The after effects of radiation poisoning. But then also there's this, this like, yeah, nothing will grow here. Like it's mm. literally, this is just scorched earth. It's all over guys. It's all, it's all over folks. You know, that's it. That's it for Hiroshima. How did the city rebuild from such devastation? And when did it pick up this new identity of it being a city for peace? So one of the things that's really interesting uh, when you read accounts of, you know, what happened here and and the rebuilding and you talk to survivors, um, you know, witnesses who saw it. Um, one of the things that I've heard uh, survivors talk about is there were really like these kind of three sort of factors that were that were present in Hiroshima at, right after the bombing. One was, of course, like this just abyss of despair, right, like was there um, for a lot of people. But at the same time. They had this like fever, what I've heard some describe as a fever to rebuild, right? Mm. Like we have to rebuild the city. Um, we have to put it back. And and even some of the like, you know, municipal government, members of the municipal, go- municipal government were discussing like, oh, well, maybe we should just like, you know, build it somewhere else, you know, <laughs> like rebuild mm. somewhere mm. else. Um, but people said, no, like this is Hiroshima. This is our town. And this is where our town lives, right? So they started rebuilding it. Um, of course, like in the main, like, like I said before that kind of the circle of death, um, around the hypo center, that area, as I understand it remained pretty much just like a lot of rubble and nastiness for, for a while, but around the outskirts, people started, um, you know, rebuilding, um, there was the, you know, the black market that showed up by Hiroshima station, um, you know, and, uh, and people kind of scraped by as they could but the other thing that's really interesting that characterized the city pretty much immediately was this idea that the new hiroshima must be a city of peace mm. and this was something that people the citizens thought this way and they felt this way i mean and and, it, and who's to blame them right like i think most people in japan had had enough of war at that point and the people in hiroshima and nagasaki like doubly so triply so it is an admirable reaction though to such devastation you could definitely imagine it going completely the opposite way and hiroshima becoming this city of revenge or something absolutely much darker well sure right and i mean i i I mean and i certainly wonder you know if something like that had happened in america you know what would happen i mean we can see even just from like 9 11 which was you know it was like all about vengeance right so um you know but yeah they weren't they weren't interested in that they were like yeah no like we're like we're we're totally tapped out on war and we want to, um, you know, to just have a nice peaceful life, a peaceful existence, but something that's really also really amazing and admirable. One of the things I love about Hiroshima is that not only were they like, yeah, like we want a city of peace. They created a citizens council, right. Um, to sort of steer the reconstruction of Hiroshima and the citizens council, like they had all these fantastic ideas, like really amazing ideas, not always strictly speaking, feasible ideas. Um, like, <laughs> One like one of the people was like they were like oh yeah well, like we should connect all the rivers with channels because there's seven rivers that run through Hiroshima or there were at that time I think they combined two of them and now there's six but um, 
they were like, yeah, you know, we should connect the rivers with channels and create a Venice of the East. Right. Um, so we could really own that, that, you know, that nickname, um, you know, another, another person was like, no, 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 what we really need are, are floating casinos like Monte Carlo. The one thing they all agreed on unanimously was that the new Hiroshima, as I mentioned, the new Hiroshima must be a city of peace. Right. So many of the things, things that you wouldn't know necessarily, so many of the things that characterize the city today are a direct result of that citizens council. Right. So the spacious boulevards, um, the greenery, the fact that there's so many trees everywhere, um, the green belts along the river belt or along all the rivers, all the rivers have green belts along them in Hiroshima, parks, trees, the Peace Park, the Peace Memorial Museum and peace studies programs in every school in Hiroshima um, from K through 12 all the way on up to the universities. And this still exists to this day. All those things owe their origin to those passionate dreamers who envisioned a beacon of peace arising from the ashes of nuclear war. And it was in 1947 this idea first really crystallized or at least became mm-hmm. politically official, I guess, when the mayor, a man named Shinzo Hamai, read a declaration of peace in the uh, the Hiroshima Peace Park. What? Yeah, what is now Hiroshima Peace Park? Yeah, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't uh, the Peace Park at the time, but what is now the Hiroshima's uh, Peace Memorial Park? And he read. Yeah, he read the first declaration of peace from Hiroshima, and that that was the first official, uh, you know, peace memorial ceremony um, in 1947. And again, they were still under occupation at that time. Um, and uh, he had to be really careful in what he said. Right, like he could. He could talk about peace a lot, but like talking about getting too deep into like memorial type stuff was forbidden, um, you know, or was really constrained. Let's mm. say, let's put it that way, was was constrained. And also um, it was forbidden to talk about the after effects of the bombing in the media under the occupation. Um, they had the press code, which which forbid, you know, discussing the A-bomb and its effects. So Shinzo Hamai, yeah, he stood there and he read the Declaration of Peace from Hiroshima and... Um, it's one of the most amazing, you know, things I've ever read. Actually, is that dec- declaration of peace, because um, he's literally standing in, you know, this city where the evidence of the bombing is still everywhere. Like they're still, they haven't even finished, you know, cleaning up all the rubble and everything, probably. And you know, as he was reading it, um, and of course, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing it and hopefully not butchering it too badly. But, um, but one of the most amazing things that he said in it, he says, when when we face a crisis, we have to have a revolution of thought. And, uh, you know, completely changed the way that we're thinking. And in it, he specifically says that we must become forerunners of a new world and a new civilization. And one of the, the things that you hear from so many A-bomb survivors when they talk about why they want nuclear weapons abolished, it's not just because they're like, yeah, this happened to me and it sucked. Um, they say, no, like, we don't want anyone anywhere in the world to ever suffer the way that we suffered. Right. We we have seen the top of the mountain and we're here to tell you that, like, we don't want anybody else to ever have to go there. Let's talk about the survivors, uh, the Hibakusha. How many of them are left? Because it's been 75 years now since the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Yes. So there can't be too many left who are both old enough to remember it, but also young enough to still be alive. Right. I mean, like, there's sort of two answers to that. And that's often the case when you start getting into, like, some of the hard 
the hard details about some of the uh, stuff. The official count as of last year in 2019, around 140,000 living Hibaksha, most of them in Japan. And um, th- that's the official number. And that's, it's, it's important to recognize, like, what does the official number mean? That means that that means A-bomb survivors or radiation-affected persons, as, which is what literally Hibaksha means, who, uh, who are recognized by the government as being radiation-affected persons. And in order for that to qualify, you have to pass, like, a bunch of rubrics, basically. There's, like, a whole, you know, like, there's a list of qualifications. So you either needed to be in the city at the moment of the bombing, or you needed to enter within, I believe it's two weeks, um, enter within a three kilometer radius of the hypocenter within two weeks of the bombing, or you needed to be in one of the areas that was struck by black rain. And the black rain is uh, the radiation infused soot and dust and ashes that fell in areas surrounding Hiroshima and Nagasaki following the bombs, right? Exactly. From condensation, you know, basically artificial, you know, weather that was created by the the bombing itself and then created um, as the, as all the, uh, the heat rose up and brought with it all the moisture as it rose up, it would cool and then drop down as rain, um, which might like on its face sound like a good thing, but it's rain that's falling through a black cloud of radioactive ash and, you know, all that and dust and everything. So by the time it gets to the ground, it's just this gnarly radioactive tar of death. And, um, I've actually heard, um, some survivors talk, who were struck by black rain talk about how the it would leave it left black marks on their skin that no amount of scrubbing could remove for like a good three days. Wow. Um, so, and there are some things like in in some of the museums where you can see streaks, black streaks on like panels from buildings and stuff that they've preserved um, that are still just like it looks like someone just poured tar down it. So, those people qualify as um, hibaksha, but um, also. Oftentimes you needed a witness, right? So like if you entered within the city limits or the, or the three, I should say rather the three kilometer radius of the hypocenter, if you were just there by yourself and then you left and you said like, yeah, I went there like, you know, looking for my family member who died or something. Um, if you didn't have somebody who could say, yeah, like I remember he left for, you know, downtown on that day, then sometimes the government doesn't accept your, your claim. Um, cause they figured that some people maybe just want to be recognized because they want access to the health book, which gives you free health care. So all of the official Hibaksha receive free health care. Mm. But of course, a lot of people also, and this is the thing though about the number. So why is the official number, you know, why is that, why are there two answers? So the official number may be around 140,000, but in reality, there's, there were definitely more than that. Um, and there definitely are more than that. Either people who weren't able to be recognized or who never wanted to be recognized because there still is discrimination against, um, against A-bomb survivors to this day. And on top of that, you had, um, you know, people from Korea who were brought against their will um, and, you know, perhaps Chinese and other minorities who wouldn't have qualified and maybe were never even, you know, documented or recorded properly. And um, those people, like we do know that there, we do know about Korean hibaksha as well, but there probably are a lot more of them than are officially recognized, like certainly. And, um, and that's also true in Japan. So, um, so the real answer is, you know, a minimum of 140,000, but probably, you know, quite a bit more. So you've met some of these hibaksha and you interviewed some of them for your article and photographed them too. What kind of stories did they have to tell you and 
I well, you just brought up the issue of discrimination. So is that something that still plays on their minds? It's always difficult to talk about how someone else experiences discrimination. So I just want to kind of canvas this whole all everything I'm about to say with that statement that I am not an A-bomb survivor. And so and I don't know that I can speak on behalf of all of A-bomb survivors. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But as I understand it, um, and from what I've observed, it seems that um, the, the A-bomb survivors who are sharing their stories probably don't really worry too much about it anymore um, because they have come out and they have owned that, right? Like, yes, like I survived and it's important for me to tell people about mm-hmm. what I've experienced. And that doesn't mean that they haven't experienced um, discrimination, um, not only uh, here, but also sometimes if they travel abroad and to speak about their stories. Um, for example, um, uh, Keiko Ogura, who I interviewed for um, for that article, she was eight years old at the time of the bombing. And uh, many, many years later, when the Smithsonian Museum opened up their display of the Enolige, which is the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, uh, she was there for the grand opening as uh, an interpreter. God, that must have been an incredibly tough moment as well. Uh, it, it, it was, as I understand it. She, yeah, she definitely. Um, when she first saw it, she was um, pretty much just like stricken and and kind of and, and kind of broke down a little bit. Um, but um, but uh, as I've heard it, and I don't know all the details um, of the story, but from what I understand, there were some people who said, like, you know, why are you here? right? Like at this place, like you, why are you here? You know, cause this is like our plane that helped us win the war or whatever, which a lot of people um, in America still believe. I personally don't think that they did. Um, but um, you know, so some people were like, yeah, why are you here? And I guess one person even like threw a rock at her. Um, I know my country's so embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's actually like most of the time. <laughs> especially lately the um but um but yeah but but of course most people were you know were very kind and, and she's always really careful to point out and she says you know at the same time she went and she spoke um you know there and there was a point when someone came and asked her like well how do i say you know i'm sorry in japanese and she said oh we say gomenasai and the person bowed and said gomenasai and then everybody at the just at the meeting at the that heard her tell her testimony just lined up in a row like all the way down and just came up one after another saying, go menasai, go menasai and bowing to her. So my country's not always embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she, Ogurasan is what, 83 years old. So she was the youngest of the survivors who appeared in your article. And she was eight years old at the time of the bombings. And I guess many of the survivors who are younger than her might not have memories of that's correct because um, they were too young at the time. So it really is a very limited number of people who have this extremely important story to share. So what's being done to preserve their legacy, considering that the number of Hibakusha is dwindling as they grow old and unfortunately die? Right. Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, and one thing I'd like to, to say, just kind of I'm commenting on on exactly what you said, right? So as, as the A-bomb survivors um, grow older, you know, their average age is already around 85. And so they're sort of like this um this vanishing point there's this horizon right that's just this drops off kind of like the edge of a cliff and it's getting and it's eroding and becoming closer and closer um but so um to answer your question what are people doing to preserve the stories of the hibaksha and actually an awful lot fortunately an awful lot first of all there's the abom legacy successor program at 
uh, Peace Memorial Museum, where uh, survivors um, share their stories with uh, with people who then inherit their stories. And the study is actually like three years. It's a three-year program. And people who are in it learn about the bombing. Um, and, and they are paired up with a survivor who they interview multiple times and ask many questions. And um, over the course of, of the program, they learn the details of that survivor's story so that they can, they can inherit it as an oral tradition. What does that actually mean, though, to inherit it? Do they retell it as if they're embodying the person who actually experienced the event or is it third person recounting the story of someone yeah exactly so they they do it in third person yeah they do it in third person um and what it means to inherit the story it, it means that you have studied that story directly under the person who experienced that story. Mm. And you have asked them many questions about details of what they saw, what they heard, what they felt, what they smelled, what they experienced. And, um, and you have assembled as much detail as possible. And at the same time, you're studying, as I mentioned, in general about the bombing so that you can fit their story within the context of the bombing of Hiroshima, like, you know, writ large, like the whole event. But at the same time, um, A-bomb survivors have, since the beginning, have been working to to extend their stories beyond the borders of Hiroshima City, right? So you have like Mayors for Peace, which um, president is the, is the mayor of Hiroshima, the vice president is the mayor of Nagasaki, and they connect with cities overseas to create a network of cities, of municipal governments that don't, that have agreed to not have anything to do with with nuclear weapons or nuclear war, and thus to put pressure on the on the federal governments to you know sign the ICANN treaty and things like that. So there's a lot of these kinds of efforts as well, and and organizations that are working to share that story. And um, as Yasuko Suhiro said, in, in who I interviewed in my article, she said that one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more traction with efforts to abolish nuclear weapons and to classify them. With mm. along with chemical weapons and biological weapons as these unacceptable, you know, intensely cruel uh, implements of war that need to be banned. The reason why we're seeing more and more people who feel that way is because the stories of the Hibakusha have been being spread more and more around the world. Because when you hear what happened, there's this kind of humanitarian imperative of like, wow, yeah, like this is totally unacceptable, right? Like to have children who were innocent and they were affected by radiation. And even years after the, when the war is over, the, year, the war has been over for years and they suddenly get leukemia and die like Sadako Sasaki and so many other children. Is there a danger that even with these legacy programs in place, um, that once the last of the Hibakusha pass away, that their stories become diluted and forgotten? You know, one of the things that, that was actually mentioned at a couple of, uh, of the interviews that I did for this piece that I didn't really get into in, in the piece because it was kind of tangential to it, but um, there is concern uh, among Hibaksha themselves, as well as some of the people who are working to preserve their stories, there is concern over maintaining the accuracy of the stories. But the other concern is, you know, will people remember it at all? And 
you know, I can say with confidence that um, the stories of the A-bomb survivors are being shared more and more. And there is such a huge effort to, pre- to preserve the stories that exist and, and to share them. And there, the fact that there is a concern with accuracy, like we need to keep them as accurate as possible, right? That the people are, are thinking about that and anticipating that. I feel that, that the stories of the survivors are always going to be with us. To wrap up, it's the 75th year since the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Fortunately, the plants and trees are all growing and it's a thriving city despite early expectations. So how is the city commemorating this year and how has the coronavirus impacted upon that? As I mentioned, Hiroshima um, has been characterized not only as a city of peace, but also as a um, as a city that is doing peace outreach, right? Mm-hmm. So there was already a ton of infrastructure for reaching out um, and sharing Hiroshima's message overseas um, uh, before the COVID uh, the COVID nineteen uh, situation happened. So, um, so for example, um, like for the last ten years, the museum has been um, conducting. Uh, seminars, webinars, I should say, webinars with A-bomb survivors giving their testimonies with an interpreter when necessary. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that activity hasn't been affected too much. Obviously, like conferences and stuff were canceled but um, or moved online. But overall, like it hasn't really slowed down, you know, the drive for, for peace in Hiroshima, which is pretty cool to see. Um, as far as what they're doing this year, um, they are limiting the number of people who can attend the ceremony. So it's by invitation only. And uh, on top of that, they are uh, limiting things like the, the Toro Nagashi, the lantern floating ceremony. Um, this year, as I understand it, they're only going to be floating 10 lanterns, which is really sad actually to think about. Like, Because normally there's 10,000, I think, lanterns that light wow. up the river every year um, mm. on, August, on the evening of August 6th. And it's beautiful, all floating in front of the A-bomb dome, each one with a peace message written on it or the name of somebody who was lost in the bombing, you know, floating on the river. Um, and so they're going to be doing 10. I, would, I, w- I was hoping that they would at least do like 75, like a birthday cake, you know, but... <laughs> Uh, they're doing 10, uh, I guess. So, um, and again, it's going to be, I think probably they're just going to have, I imagine, survivors or families of, of victims coming. And normally, you know, you have people from all over the world gathering and writing peace messages in many different languages and putting them down there and people taking photos of their kids with their cell phones and stuff while they put the peace lantern in the river. And Yeah, let's hope we get back to that sometime soon, um, at least before the 100th anniversary. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> By the, by the 100th anniversary, yeah. Yeah, assuming assuming we all live to see the 100th anniversary. And it's also interesting, I've, I've heard um, uh, uh, Keiko Ogura, the A-bomb survivor, mention how um, you know, seeing what's happening with corona is, is in many ways very familiar to her as, a, as an A-bomb survivor, having lived with the fear of radiation poisoning, which could come at any moment, right? It could make mm. you sick, could kill you. Suddenly there's this invisible illness everywhere. And there's also even discrimination against you know, some of the nurses who have been working and um, people are afraid of people who, who have perhaps been infected. And this is something that A-bomb survivors have lived with you know, pretty much their whole lives, or at least for the last 75 years, you know, seeing that, uh, that those parallels, that's very interesting. And I've also heard, um, heard them express that, and Ogurasana said this, and I've heard uh, some others say this as well, that this is a time when even though things are really difficult, we're all in it together, right? We're all on the same planet. We're all facing the same struggles and the solutions to them all around the world are also the same. We have to work together 
That was Peter Cordes, and you can read his full article with pictures on the Japan Times website. A link is in the episode notes. If you're liking Deep Dive as a podcast, and I believe you might if you've made it this far through the episode, please do consider rating us and reviewing us on whichever podcasting platform you prefer. I hope you're enjoying your summer and the cacophony of cicadas that comes with it. Until next time, Potskale Summer. trying to finish up this podcast and this is what's going on outside my window. Just give me five minutes to record the outro, please.